I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18 and actually concluding our study in Galatians. Um, so Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Uh, as you're turning there, I do just want to say a word about um, the passing of Miss Lily Jackson. Uh, Miss Lily was a sweet lady that was a member of our church for many years. Uh, she lived, as you're coming off John Calhoun Expressway, uh, and there's Eve Street right there for many uh, the Eve Street exit. Uh, for many years, she lived on that road where you come off on the Eve Street exit uh, in one of the houses there on the row of houses that's right there along the expressway. And uh, she loved being here at the church. She loved being a part of her Sunday school class. Uh, she had, though, uh, been in the hospital for months. And I know that she was uh, not in a great condition physically and suffering in some ways. And so uh, we rejoice now that her suffering is over and that she's with the Lord. Um, but we will miss her. Galatians chapter 6. We turn to verses 11 through 18. And uh, this morning uh, we will conclude Paul's letter to the Galatians. So let me begin reading for us in verse 11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. Well, as we have the opportunity to wrap up our study in Galatians this morning, you notice that as Paul comes to this last section in his letter, he includes a personal note here in verse 11. He says there in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, it is possible that as Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians that he wrote it all out by hand himself. But most scholars believe that Paul would have had a secretary and he would have been speaking out loud the letter and that the secretary would have been copying it down. And so it seems it's what, what is happening here is that Paul has gotten to the end of the letter and he takes the pen from the secretary and Paul himself begins to write. And you notice there he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, why would Paul be writing with large letters? There's been a number of different views on this. One is that perhaps Paul had bad handwriting. And you know, sometimes people with bad handwriting will write with big letters. Um, I don't think that's probably the case. Others say, well, maybe it's because Paul had bad eyesight. 
And we know from Paul's writings that uh, there's a good chance that Paul had some type of medical issue with his eyes and was not able to see as well. And so perhaps he had trouble seeing, and so he was writing with larger letters. But others believe that Paul was writing with large letters, and I think this is more of the sense, that he was writing with larger letters because he was coming to the end of this letter, and he wanted to emphasize the central themes that he has been covering in this letter. And so in order to do so, he takes the pen himself and he begins to write, and he writes with large letters as though he's putting it in bold, in all caps. He's underlining it so that the Galatians would know the emphasis that he wants to place on these matters. And it should be no surprise to us that as Paul now focuses on the central themes of this letter, that Paul focuses on the cross. Because Galatians is about the gospel, and at the heart of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. As Paul concludes this letter and focuses on the gospel, I want us to look at our passage this morning in three parts. And First of all, we'll consider the motives behind belittling the cross. Secondly, we'll consider the argument for boasting in the cross. And then third, we'll consider a prayer for those who boast in the cross. So first of all, look there in verses 12 and 13, and we see the motives behind belittling the cross. In verse 12 we read, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Now notice there in verse 12 he speaks of those, and uh, he mentions them again later on in verse 13, he speaks of those. Who are those? Well, he's referring here to the Judaizers, to the false teachers in Galatia. They were from Jerusalem, and they were pressuring the Galatian church, in particular the Gentiles in the Galatian church, to be circumcised. You see there in verse 12 that they would force you to be circumcised. Again in verse 13, he says they desire to have you circumcised. And why is it that the Judaizers are forcing, pressuring those in the church to be circumcised? Well, these false teachers had a similar perspective as those men in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where we read, But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this, is, this was their perspective, this was the perspective of the Judaizers, that those Gentiles in the Galatian church needed to be circumcised in order that they might be saved. And you notice here that there's a connection between the flesh or circumcision, they want to boast, they want to make a good showing in the flesh, right? The idea there is that if, if, if the Gentiles in Galatia are circumcised, if they receive this mark in the flesh, then they'll be able to boast in them. And there's a connection here between this boasting in the flesh and persecution. They want to boast in their flesh. They want to boast in the fact that they've been circumcised so that they will not be persecuted. You see, in the first century, for Jews who were religious, there was a very clear way to not be persecuted. It was easy in some sense to avoid persecution because the way that the Jews operated in the first century in terms of how folks are to relate to God is that the Jews were happy for the Gentiles to worship with the Jews if they in fact became Jews. 
if the Gentiles became Jews, if they were circumcised, if they obeyed the law of Moses, if they uh, honored the Jewish traditions. So when the religious leaders discovered that the Jewish Christians were worshiping with Gentiles, the Jewish Christians could avoid persecution if the Gentiles agreed to be circumcised, obeyed the laws of Moses, and followed the Jewish traditions and customs. Then other Jews would look upon it and say, okay, that's fine, that's kosher. They've become Jews like us. The Gentiles' effort to follow the Jewish customs and traditions, to obey the law of Moses, to be circumcised, would be evidence that they were now worthy of being the people of God. They were worthy of worshiping with the Jews. But you see, Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, declared something very different. That these Gentiles were not worthy of knowing God and being saved and relating to the people of God and worshiping with, God, with God's people because of their attempts to follow the Jewish law, but rather solely by grace through faith and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this reality, this truth, this declaration stirred great angst and opposition amongst the Jews against those Christians who were affirming this gospel. It's helpful maybe to think about it this way. Galatians, in many ways, is a book. We could say it this way. Galatians is a book about how we can be made right with God. Is it through the law by doing good things and religious rites, or is it through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ? But we must understand that for most folks, the fundamental question in their life, and this may be true for some here this morning, the fundamental question in their life is not, how can I be accepted before God? But rather, the fundamental question in their life is, how can I be accepted before others? And that was the problem with the Judaizers. It seems that the chief motivating factor in their life was not, how can we be made right before God, but how can we be accepted before others and therefore not persecuted? It, the world has certain value systems. And if you boast in the right things, if you boast in the value system of this world, you will be accepted, not before God, but among others. And the Judaizers wanted to be accepted among the Jews. What Paul is saying here, actually, is the same thing that Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 44. There were some Jewish people there that were resisting Jesus and resisting his teaching and who he was. And Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, verse 44... How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In many ways, if we are to know Christ, if we are to embrace the gospel, if we are to experience its transforming power in our lives, then we must be more concerned about how we can be made right before God than rather how we can be accepted by others. We, in fact, have a gospel that many people believe in the South, right? It takes many different forms. kind of has the idea that if you've been baptized before or if you've said a 
prayer of confession or you've gone to a church youth camp or you go to church services on Easter and Christmas or you support conservative family values, then you are accepted by cultural Christianity. And none of those things are bad, right, in and of themselves. But none of them actually constitute the gospel. And in fact, if we were to actually embrace the gospel as it is, it would not put us in good standing with cultural Christianity, but in fact, it would put us in so many ways at odds with what cultural Christianity stands for. For others in less religious contexts, the gospel is the message that Jesus was a good teacher, that He wants everyone to be happy, that if, if you really want to know what Jesus is about, then you need to follow His rules. You need to do what He says. You want to pursue a happy life, then you need to follow the example of Jesus. It's a rather benign gospel in some ways. And if you hold to this gospel, then in certain circles you will be accepted. But nothing too radical, nothing, nothing about, say, the cross in terms of how Paul speaks of the cross in Galatians. None of this idea that God chose to execute His own Son for the sins of His people. And that therefore, the only hope that we have for salvation for you and for me and for everyone is the Lord Jesus Christ. That He's worthy of our complete and full devotion. No, that would be considered to be extreme. In fact, if we were to take that stand, others might be inclined to shun us or to mock us or to persecute us. You see, in this sense, in order for the gospel to be acceptable, in order for Jesus to be acceptable, in order for um, the cross to be acceptable, it must be tamed, it must be neutered, it must be neutralized, diminished. And so, good people, religious people, even like the Judaizers, Nice people are tempted to belittle the cross so that others will think well of them and they will not be persecuted. In this sense, the Judaizers serve as a warning for all of us to not minimize or belittle the radical truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel, but rather to embrace it in all its fullness, even if that means that the world looks down upon us. Secondly, consider this. The argument for boasting in the cross. The argument for boasting in the cross. Look there in verses 14 through 15. Paul goes on to say, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, this is interesting here because uh, most folks uh, boast, well, I could say it this way, folks boast in a lot of things. They may boast in their car, they may boast in their wealth, they may boast in their education, their athletic ability, their popularity, but it's odd that Paul here refuses to boast in his own abilities. One of the reasons that's odd is because in some ways Paul had so much to boast about. He was brilliant, he was a scholar, he he was well-recognized by his peers before he became a Christian and so forth. But it's, it's not only odd that Paul does not boast in the things that other people naturally boast in, it's also odd the thing that Paul chooses to boast in. He chooses to boast in the cross. It's hard for us to imagine how 
unusual or shocking this would have been to the ears of those who were living in the first century. Because in the first century, the cross was not something to boast about. The cross was a gruesome tool of execution. In the cotton patch translation of these verses, we read, God forbid that I should ever take pride in anything except the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or we might say, if we were using modern vernacular, we might insert here, instead of the cross or instead of lynching, we might insert electric chair. Imagine someone boasting in a lynching or an electric chair. You see, when rightly understood, the cross at one level is offensive. I mean, we, we understand that people wear crosses around their necks. They may tattoo a cross on their arm. They may put a cross on the wall in their house. And it all seems so tame and so domestic. But if we're never offended by the cross, then we can never be changed by the cross. You see, in one sense, we have to be offended by the cross before we can receive it and before it can change us. And why is the cross so offensive? Paul's told us in the letter to the Galatians, the cross is so offensive because at the cross, the Lord Jesus became a curse for us. He became sin for us. And what this means is that our sin against God is so egregious, our sin against God is so worthy of His judgment, that the only remedy for our rebellion was the gruesome, violent death of the perfect Son of God, in which He died in our place for our sins, taking our punishment, exhausting the wrath of God against our sin forever, so that we might be received and accepted by grace and grace alone. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the cross, but it is also the offense of the cross. Because such a message stands in opposition to human pride and self-sufficiency. As I said before, some people just believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher. And the idea is that it doesn't matter so much what we believe about who Jesus is or even what we believe about the cross. What really matters is whether or not we live like Jesus. And it is true that Jesus is our example and we should follow Him and He, he sets the ultimate and perfect example for us. But, but this is kind of the gospel or Christianity reduced down to WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's all it is. But notice that Paul does not say here in our text, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the Ten Commandments. Or God forbid that I should boast in anything except the Sermon on the Mountain, the teachings of Jesus. That's not what Paul says. Instead, he says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because fundamentally, the gospel is not about how we live. How we live is the fruit of the gospel. But the gospel itself has everything to do with what we believe about Jesus and about the cross and about His death and His resurrection. Of course, some will protest and say, well, yes, of course the cross is important. Of course the cross is important to Christianity, but not for all the reasons you're saying, not for all these offensive ideas about sin and judgment and death and wrath. 
No, the reason why Jesus died on the cross is not because we're sinners and so desperately in need of salvation, but the only reason Jesus died on the cross, and the most important reason He died on the cross, was to show us how much He loves us and to show us how we are to love each other. There's a problem with that. Imagine your house is burning down, and you're standing outside of your house, and you're there with all your family, and everybody's safe and out of the house, and you've got your pets and everything. And the house is burning down. Your neighbor runs out of his house, and he sees the house burning down, and he runs into the house, the burning house, and he dies. Now, would you think to yourself, wow, he loves me so much. No, you would not, right? Because it's like, what's the purpose of his death? Another way to look at this is if, if you're walking down the street with your friend and there's cars going by on the highway, right? And you're fine. You're just talking with your friend and stuff. And he pauses for a moment and he says, I want you to know how much I love you. And then he steps out in front of a car and he dies. Would you think, oh, wow, that's amazing. I never knew that he loved me so much. No, you would think he was crazy, right? you think he's a lunatic. And the same thing applies to the cross. Now, now imagine a scene where your house is burning down, but you're caught inside and there's no way for you to get out. And your neighbor comes out and someone tells him, yes, he's in the house and there's no way he can get out and the house is burning. And your neighbor runs in to rescue you. He gets you out of the house, but in the process he dies. Now you know he loves you. Or imagine you're in the street and you're about to get hit by a car and your, your neighbor sees, your friend sees you being about to be hit by the car and he pushes you out of the way and as a result he gives his life for the sake of your life. You know he loves you. You see the point is, is that for the cross to be meaningful, for the death of Jesus to be meaningful, it had to accomplish something. It had to save us from something. Jesus wasn't just dying to die. He was dying to save us from something. And He was dying to save us from our sin and from death and from hell. And that's why the death of Jesus has meaning and significance. And that's why, in fact, we know that He loves us. Because He's redeeming us and rescuing us from utter destruction. It's only when we grasp this and grasp something of the offense and significance and immensity of the cross that we are liberated to glory in the cross. John Stott says it this way, The truth is that we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross simultaneously. If we boast in the cross and our ability to save ourselves, we shall never boast in the cross and in the ability of Christ crucified to save us. We have to choose. Only if we have humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners shall we give up boasting of ourselves, fly to the cross for salvation, and spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross. End of quote. Notice, though, that Paul goes on in these verses to say that when we get the centrality of the cross as our only hope of salvation, then, in fact, the cross does result in true moral transformation. Look there in the text, he says in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Here it is, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And again in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, the cross saves, but the cross not only saves, it transforms. It results in a new creation, which means the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the problem with circumcision and the Judaizers was that circumcision was all outward and external. And the Judaizers were convinced that if the Galatians were circumcised, then their circumcision would lead to true moral transformation. But that's foolish. That, in fact, is the problem with religion today. The idea is follow these tenets, keep these rules, observe these rituals, honor these rites, and you will be changed. It's all external. It's all outward. It doesn't touch the heart. But Paul is saying here that the gospel changes us from the inside. And when one is united to Christ by faith, they are fundamentally changed. The world is crucified to us and us to the world. It's not perfection. It doesn't mean that we no longer sin. But it does mean that we are fundamentally transformed so that we have new desires, new ambitions, new dreams that align with Christ and with the gospel. So the motives behind belittling the cross, and we see the, the Judaizers, they're, they're wanting to be accepted by others, and so they minimize the offense of the cross in order to avoid persecution. The argument for boasting in the cross, because it's our only hope of salvation, and it not only saves us, but it transforms us and changes us and makes us new people. And then third, and finally, a prayer for those who boast in the cross. Look there in verses 16 through 18. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now in verse 16 he says, And as for all who walk by this rule. Now what is this rule that Paul is referring to here? Well, of course, it's the gospel. It's what Paul has just been talking about in the previous verses. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the new creation that comes through faith in Jesus. This is the rule. This is the standard. This is the measuring stick. And notice he goes on furthermore to say who they are that are committed to this rule, that are faithful to this rule. Those who hold fast to this rule, to this standard of the gospel and the cross, he says, are the Israel of God. Actually, that verse there in verse 16, the word and that you see there in the latter part of that verse is the word chi. It could also be translated even. So we could read it this way. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. And I think that's the idea that Paul is getting at here. He's, he's identifying those who hold fast to the gospel as the Israel of God. And this is a powerful statement the Apostle Paul is making here as he comes to the end of this letter that he's been writing to Galatians. Because remember, what is the false teacher's great claim? In large part, their, their great claim is that they are Jews because they are physical descendants of Abraham. And because they are Jews and physical descendants of Abraham and have been circumcised and keep the law, they are the true people of God. They are the true Israel of God. And if the Gentiles want to be 
If they want to know God, if they want to worship God, then they need to become like them. And now, Paul concludes this letter that he is writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation by affirming that all who hold to the rule and the standard of the gospel, whether they are Jew or Gentile, are in fact the true Israel of God. It's a remarkable claim. No, you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to follow the law. You do not have to keep the Jewish traditions to be the true Israel of God. You are the true Israel of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is, I believe, what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 3, earlier in the letter, verses 7 through 9, where he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. He goes on in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 to say, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, you're the sons, you're the daughters of Abraham through faith. You are the true Israel of God. Now, I do believe that there are some future promises that the Scriptures indicate that are specifically reserved for ethnic Israel. But the point that Paul is making here is that all who through faith trust in the Lord Jesus and His atoning death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, they are the sons of Abraham. They are, spiritually speaking, the true Israel of God. And my friends, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning, that means you. That means me. We are the true Israel of God, the people of God, who are the recipients of all God's promises through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And so the children of promise, those who believe the promise of Jesus through faith, are in fact the children of God. Paul goes on, of course, to identify himself as one who boasts in the cross as well. Not just speaking more generally of those who hold to the rule of the gospel, but he identifies himself as one who holds to the rule of the gospel and who boasts in the cross. And he has, in fact, the marks to show for it. You see it there in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Of course, we know that as a Jew, Paul possessed the mark of circumcision. But as he's already stated in the earlier verses, in verse 15... As it relates to salvation, the mark of circumcision means nothing. Far more important to Paul is that in his body, he bears the marks of the cross. And what are the marks of the cross for the Apostle Paul? What are the marks that he bears in his body? Of course, we know that Paul, as a result of being faithful to the gospel of God's free grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that he was persecuted many times. He often suffered beatings and whippings and stonings. 
And see, Paul is drawing a contrast here, right? Because already in verses 12 and 13, he's spoken of the Judaizers and how they've tried to avoid persecution. So, of course, the Judaizers do not bear in their body the marks of the cross. But Paul does because he's been faithful to this gospel. Paul, in this sense, has the only marks that matter, not the mark of circumcision, but the only marks that matter because he has the marks that have come to him as a result of boasting solely in the cross of Jesus Christ for salvation. And those marks point others, in fact, to the cross. John Calvin says it this way, Quote, for even as earthly warfare has its decorations with which generals honor the bravery of a soldier, so Christ, our leader, has his own marks of which he makes good use in decorating and honoring some of his followers. These marks, however, are very different from the others, for they have the nature of the cross, and in the sight of the world they are disgraceful. End of quote. If you're shunned, If you're overlooked, if you're mocked because of your faith in Christ and His free grace, Paul would say rejoice. The world considers those marks disgraceful, but those are the marks of the cross, the marks of the Lord Jesus Himself. Notice as one who boasts only in the cross, Paul goes on to pray for those who, like him, find their only hope and boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the prayer that he offers here at the very end of the letter is full of grace. You notice there in verse 16, he prays that they would have peace and mercy. And then in verse 18, he prays that they would know grace. Look there in verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And then verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I love how in verse 18 he, he prays that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with your spirit. In other words, Paul does not just want them to know it in their heads. He doesn't just want them to know ideas about the grace of Jesus, but he wants them to know and sense and feel and be comforted by and sustained by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in their spirits. And then one final reassuring word he gives this troubled congregation. Remember that this is a letter that is full of rebukes and correction. It's a letter in which Paul repeatedly warns them that if they forsake the Lord Jesus, if they forsake this gospel of free grace, then they have fallen away from grace themselves. Then they can no longer legitimately identify themselves as Christians. And then notice how he speaks this word of reassurance to them in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. He identifies them as brothers. And even when he speaks of the Lord Jesus, he doesn't say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's assuming you're still my brother. You're still my sister in Christ. You're still confessing Christ to be Lord and relying on him and him alone for your salvation. This is my great hope for you. Despite all the warnings, despite all the correction, despite all the admonishments, my great hope for you is that, yes, you are in fact in Christ. And you will turn to Him. And you will rest in Him. And you will trust in Him until your dying day. What a fitting prayer 
for a letter that is so full of grace and centered on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ends his letter with grace, trusting that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will keep them and that they will finally be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians so many years ago, and we thank you, Lord, for how clearly the gospel is laid out for us in this letter. We are so grateful this morning, Lord, for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we confess, Lord, that it is our only hope of salvation. And Father, we pray that we would not be like the Judaizers who are more desirous of the praise of men rather than to know you and to experience your grace and your approval. And Father, we pray that by your mercy we would be like the Apostle Paul who glories in the cross and finds his only hope in the cross and is willing to be persecuted, even suffer for the sake of the cross. So Father, we pray that as we've reflected on this letter over the last several months that you would take these truths and the reality of the cross and apply it to our lives that we might be men and women of the cross, that we might be men and women who revel in your grace, that we might be men and women who in various ways even bear the marks of the cross in our own lives. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray.